Well, good evening. You can hear me okay? I'm not accustomed to holding a microphone. I'm just used to talking loud. So I, every once in a while I may set this down. So if I do and you can't hear me, uh, we'll, uh, we'll review or something. So anyhow, hey, it's great to be here. When McKinsey contacted me and said, I want you to, would you be willing to speak at the 20s and 30s group? And I immediately thought, well, I don't know, it's been a long time since I was 20 or 30, okay, at least a couple of years, more like a couple of decades. But uh, anyhow, I started thinking about what, uh, what, what's relevant to 20s and 30s, and I thought back to, well, when I was 20 and 30, what was I dealing with? And I suspect some of it's similar. For an example, there's always friendship challenges. There's always career choices and career development and perhaps the completion of education and always some good opposite gender relationships and all kinds of political divisions across the country and in the world and, and then some spiritual growth and challenges and things that we experiment with and all of that. And I suspect for you guys it's perhaps somewhat similar to that. When I started thinking, however, about 20s and 30s, the thought that came to mind was uh, Eric Erickson. How many of you would be psych grads or psych undergrads, anyone? Okay, so you're gonna be a little bit familiar with Eric Erickson's stages of the life cycle. He, he starts from birth and goes all the way to, uh, to death. <laughs> That's exciting. And he, he has eight stages. And so I tried to figure out, so where are you guys at 20s and 30s? And I said, you're in stage six. Now stage six is pretty important because it's in stage six, according to Erickson, that your cycle, psychological social crisis is intimacy versus isolation. Okay, think about that. In other words, you're at the prime time to be exercising and practicing intimacy. Now, let me clarify. I'm not talking about sexual intimacy, okay? Just for, just for the record. Uh, some of you started looking around already like, where would we go for that? And uh, Okay, so it's typical intimacy being closeness, connectedness, and so forth. And his theory is as long as you are successful at this stage, then you're ready to move to the next stage. So if you've been successful at this stage experimenting with intimacy and so forth, you're, you're doing well. But what comes to mind is, after visiting with McKinsey, is the number one killer for intimacy in any relationship is poor conflict resolution. The inability to resolve, resolve conflict will just about trash any relationship. You think about relationships within family, okay, whether it's your parents, your siblings, uh, within uh, colleagues at work, fellow students, whether it's a spouse, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a fiance, whatever it may be, so the idea of presenting conflict and conflict resolution to you guys, to me, seems really relevant. Now, you might be asking, then, what stage am I in? If you're stage six and there's only eight stages, you're thinking, he's got to be an eight, right? But I'm holding on to seven, okay? I'm just going to hold on dearly. To, to, I'm, I'm probably old enough to be in number eight, but I refuse to go there. And, and so here's the psychosocial crisis of, of people my age. It actually starts probably in the 50s and runs on into the 60s. And at some point, you slip over into that stage eight, which I'm refusing to do. But here's the psychosocial crisis. It's generativity versus stagnation. Okay? What's generativity mean? Well, it's about, it's about producing. 
It's about contributing. It's about investing. It's about creating. It's about giving and, and uh, modeling and you name it. It's all those kinds of things. And in fact, when I started thinking about coming here tonight, I thought, I can't think of a better reason for me to address a bunch of 30s and 40s, excuse me, 20s and 30s, uh, than to say, hey, that'll keep me from being stagnant, right? You hang around with younger people, and you listen to where they are, and you interact with them a little bit, and it keeps you kind of alive. So my opportunity tonight is to challenge each one of you as it relates to conflict and see if I can move you along a little bit, prepare you for being better at intimacy, regardless of where you are in any relationships, I think that would be a helpful thing for all of us to work on. So the killers, frankly, the killers of really good intimacy is going to be conflict. So the ability to do this is a skill. Now here's the sad part. We all learned our conflict resolution skills from where? Home. Mom and dad. Now for some of you that was great. You saw mom and dad sit down over a cup of coffee on the couch. They held hands and they discussed and, and they got all done. They kissed and made up, right? And you go, man, now that's how it should be. But some of you were in the other room listening to conflict that didn't go well. Some of your parents probably practiced the rule of no conflict in front of the children. So you grew up not knowing how to resolve conflict. We had neighbors at our house at one point in time that practiced that rule. No, no marital conflict, er, conflict within the, the house, so they would go outside. Except outside to them was right almost below a master bedroom window. I know more about that couple than I care to know about, okay? And you know, there's an old saying that says, especially in marriage, in the first year, the wife speaks and the husband listens. In the second year, the husband speaks and the wife listens in the third year, they both speak and the neighbors are listening, right? <laughs> so conflict is something that you're going to encounter. I'd love for you to be prepared. Let me give you my story about conflict because the reality is we learned this theory, this philosophy of how to resolve or not resolve based on how we were raised. So at age seven, okay, I'm uh, going to school at a new school and uh, at the time, according to my report card, said I was timid and shy, and I wrote my name backwards. They didn't have a name for that back then, okay? And uh, so I'm going to school, a new school, and apparently I looked like somebody somebody wanted to pick on. And so they did. And there were a couple of kids that picked on me two or three days in a row, and I finally went home, and I finally had enough courage to say to my dad, hey, Dad, there's some guys kind of picking on me at school. And he says to me, what'd you do? Well, I didn't do anything. Well, how come? I said, well, it didn't seem right. I'm a new kid here. I don't want to get in trouble. And he says to me at age seven, I don't ever want to see you start a fight, but you better finish the fight, right? Some of you had the same dad I did, <laughs> right? Okay, that's not all bad. I'm not, I'm not. And so here I am, seven years old, getting picked on at school. So one day we're in the front yard, my dad's on the front porch, and I'm hanging out, and all of a sudden down the street comes these two same guys walking down the sidewalk. And I said to my dad, Dad, here comes those guys that are picking on me, bullying me, right? And he goes, what are you going to do? Well, I don't know. We got to do something. So I just walked up to him, and I said, hey. And I just punched one of them right in the head. 
and he fell down. And then he got up and he ran away and he took his friend with him and he never bothered me after that, okay? Now I'm at seven, okay? I'm seven. In the ninth grade, I'm 14, right? Maybe 15. And I got a girlfriend. I'm not supposed to because my dad was a Baptist minister and, uh, and you, you can't have a girlfriend at 14 or 15. That's just not right, right? And the, on Friday night, everybody went to the movies except the Baptist minister's kid. We couldn't go to movies or dances or play cards or anything else that was probably fun to do, <laughs> okay? But I made a plan, and that plan was I would meet my girlfriend at the outside of the theater, okay, which was around the corner from the pizza place. And uh, so I made a plan to meet her there. She comes out. She greets me. We're walking. And these two guys pull up in this car. And they're giving her a bad time, you know, making statements about how she looks. She's a very attractive young lady. You're younger than me, but, uh, you know, old enough. And uh, so, okay, from age 7 to age 14, I had learned how to handle myself. And so these guys are talking to me, and I say to them, you guys need to back off and leave us alone. And the guy that had his window down yells at me, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, come on over here and I'll show you. And he came over there and before I knew it, he was laid out. And then his buddy stops the car and comes out and, and says, oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, the next thing I know, he's laid out. And the next thing I know, my girlfriend's mother's grabbing me, shoving me into her car and apparently had gone inside, saw this thing, called my parents Okay, so I, I, I'm, I'm immediately, I'm, she, I'm on my way home, and I say to her, you're going to have to drop me off a block before my house. Why, she says, because I'm not supposed to have a girlfriend, and I don't want to see this. So I walk up, I'm, I'm running to the house, and my dad, as fathers will do, is standing at the front porch like this. And he sees me, and he checks me out, and he said, are you okay? Yeah. Did you start that fight? No, sir. Did you finish that fight? Yes, sir. Okay. And he turned around and he walked back in. You see the theme here? I had one style. Not saying it was a good style, but I had a style. Okay? Well, then you grow up and you go on to school and I get married and we go to a Bible college of all things. Okay? And there's a special class that we would go to and my wife would get there ahead of me and every week I would go to this class or several times a week there'd be one guy sitting like right next to my wife. And I don't mean just sitting next to my wife. She was, he was gazing at my wife, okay? Now, you're, I'm, I'm 21 years old, and we're just married, and that's not cool. So I walk in, and I kind of look at him, and I said, do you mind if I sit by my wife? And he goes, this is your wife? And I said, yes, it is my wife. Do you mind if I sit beside her? No, I guess, and he says to me, I guess next time you'll have to get here earlier. Well, that's the wrong thing to say with a guy with my background, okay? I said to him, okay, I'll go find another seat. Two days later, I go back to the class. He's sitting there again, and I say, okay, that's it. I'm going to ask you to leave. And I said, this is my wife, and I don't like how you're interacting. She's behaving herself. She's minding her own business, but he's all engaged. I mean, he is staring at her. I finally said to her, listen, I need you to back away from my wife a little bit. And he goes, but she's so pretty. I said, I know, and that beauty is there for me to gaze at, not you. And so I finally said, I'll tell him, I'm going to give you one more warning. And here's the warning. If I come in here one more time in class and you're sitting right next to my wife in my seat, I'm going to drag your out of here, 
and you won't return. In Bible college. You see what happens when we learn bad conflict resolution over time? It just becomes part of who we are, and we kind of carry it around. Well, then I get older, I get married, I have a couple of kids, and I go to seminary. And I have a class called Spiritual Formation. This is a class that you're supposed to decide in the seminary class of what has been your rule for life. What guides your life? What are your guiding principles? And he gave us some wonderful examples, and he read passages of Scripture from other people that said, my guiding light has been the great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And everybody's like, yeah, that's a great one. And other people read verses like, I want to love like I'm loved, and so on. And I sat down to write this paper, and I found myself very conflicted because the reality is that's not at all how I'd lived, and that wasn't my rule for life. And so I struggled with it and finally decided I was going to be really honest and write a paper and take a little risk. And so here's what I wrote. Now, this is a little iffy for some of you, perhaps, but it probably won't be the first time you've heard this language. I wrote in my paper to my seminary professor, my rule for life is I don't bullshit, I don't give shit, and I don't take shit. That seemed innocent enough, don't you think, in seminary? Well, it was a little risky, but I did it, and a few weeks later, I get my paper back, and the guy says, A+. Plus. Most refreshing paper I've read in years. Finally, somebody's being honest, okay? Now, I was being honest, and the, and the truth is, you guys, you know what I did? The first two of those... Uh, don't BS somebody. I use biblical verses to back that up. We should be truthful at all times, speak truth, okay? Secondly, we shouldn't be giving people grief, right? I could use Bible verses to lay claim to that, but what I had to say to him was that that third one, that's the one that snags me, the one that I had to learn how to take. And for some of us, that's hard because we've been doing that for a long time. And so my conflict resolution skills didn't help me in that department at all. But thanks to God, okay, and the grace of God and a lot of work, that's the old mean. It's an old style. But here's the reality, you guys. Every one of us in here have a style. You may not know it, but you do. And you're probably part of what I call the three R's, okay? Here are my three R's. See if you can remember these, okay? The first one was what I was. We're rascals. We like to fight. We kind of look for a fight. When your father tells you at age seven, don't ever start, but make sure you finish, that's a green light to fight, okay? And that's the style. Not a good one, but it's there. Characteristics of these rascals, they look for a fight, they carry a chip, they're always going to win, okay? I don't know what relationships you're in, but I'll tell you this. The closer you get in relationship, the less likely you want to be a fighter, the less likely you want to lead with, I have to win because I'm always right. Because if you have to win, somebody else has to lose. That was my style, historically. And then there's a second style, which we'd call the runners. It's the second R, the runners. They hate conflict. They'll avoid it at all costs. They, their theory or philosophy is keep the peace at any cost. And the cost is what they think and what they feel and what they believe and what they want and what they need never gets discussed because they're not presenting it, they're running. That was my wife's style. 
her family were people that, you know what, what I'm talking about when I say they swept stuff under the rug? Never talked about it. Some of you raised like that. Some of you might still be that way. After tonight, hopefully not, okay? So our first year of marriage, we got a fighter. You, you, got, a, you got a rascal married to a runner. So anytime there's conflict, and it was going to be conflict, I would say, we need to sit down and talk. And her response would be, no, we don't. What do you mean we don't? No. And we lived in a little one-room apartment, an efficiency, one of those where the bed kind of folds out the wall, you know. And the only room that had a door on it was the bathroom, and that's where she would go when I wanted to resolve conflict, is she'd go and hide. And I'd say, we're going to talk about this right now. No, we're not. And you could hear me pounding on the door, trying to get that thing open so she'd come out and resolve, okay? Not a good theory, not a good process. Here's the third one. However, resolvers, okay? This is the ideal one. This is where we want to be. Some of the characteristics of resolvers are this. I think these are important. They are assertive, but they're not aggressive. They tend to speak well, but they listen even more effectively. They move toward conflict, not away from it. Most often, they display high regard for other people's feelings, and they have a resolution as their goal. See the difference? The rascals have one goal. I'm going to win. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to take you out. The runners have one goal in mind. Stay safe. Stay peaceful. Don't get hurt. Okay? The resolvers say, I'm going to move toward conflict, and I'm going to work through it, and I'm going to become a resolver. And frankly, you guys, it's the only way that works. It's the only way that works in any and all relationships. Why is that important? Because of this. Conflict is unavoidable. You believe that? I want you to say that with me, okay? Ready? Conflict is unavoidable. Oh, I don't think you believe that. Come on. Conflict is unavoidable. Let's try something else. Conflict is inevitable, okay? Conflict is inevitable. Okay, very good. All right, we got that? It's unavoidable, and it's inevitable. In other words, it's going to happen. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to me. It always has. It always will. has from the very beginning. Why is it unavoidable? Look back at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. We got good old Adam and good old Eve, right? Eve's tempted. She persuades Adam. Adam. Adam partakes of the fruit. They get in a big argument. God comes and approaches him, and what's he do in the midst of conflict? He's the runner. She, okay, the woman you gave me, he blames her, right? They have a big conflict. Then you got their kids. You got Cain and Abel, right? From as far back as the first family, we got conflict. Wasn't handled well. Listen to what Proverbs says here. Solomon, the wisest man, perhaps, right? He says this, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. He says in another passage, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict. He says elsewhere, the greedy stir up conflict. And then he says, a perverse person stirs up conflict. And then he says, an angry person stirs up conflict. I think it's unavoidable. I think it's going to happen. That's the truth, and we need to be better prepared to deal with that. Why is it inevitable? Well, think about the life of Jesus, you guys. Think about it. How much grief did he get? It seemed like at every turn, don't you think? There was resistance, people pushing back, calling him names. Of course, 
he was the son of God and he claimed to be, that might bring a little bit of that on you. I do not suggest we run around talking like that. But, but at every point, Jesus was confronted in numerous ways with conflict. And then he says this in, in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty much broadcasting to us that there's going to be conflict, there's going to be persecution, and you're blessed if you're there in it. And then he says further in this, in chapter 5, verse 19, he says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Peacemakers. They're not runners. They're not fighters. They're peacemakers. They're not peacekeepers. They are peacemakers. Well, it's unavoidable. It's inevitable, but it doesn't have to be unbearable. Hopefully you believe that. Let me talk to you by, about why it doesn't have to be unbearable. First of all, as it relates to conflict, you guys, we need to be spiritually prepared. Now, I don't know you guys. I know a couple of you, but I don't know where you are spiritually. It's none of my business, but I suspect in all different levels of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. But it's a really good idea if there's any conflict that we approach that with a sense of preparedness. And so here's three ways in which we can kind of prepare ourselves spiritually. You ready for this? Here we go. Jesus said in John chapter 13, he says, I got a new command for you guys. He was speaking to his disciples, by the way. And he said that we would love one another. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Best way to be prepared for any conflict. And before we approach anybody or we're approached by anyone, that we would uh, review ourselves and so forth. He goes on in verse 35 there and says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Words. In other words, all conflict, you guys, really should be motivated by our love for one another. Our love for God and our love from him and our love to one another. Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, he says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. I wonder when we confront, and this is a harsh question, but I wonder when you confront or when I confront, do we do that for the purpose of mutual edification? Or perhaps are we doing that for a more selfish reason? You hurt my feelings. You disappointed me, right? Here's another one in James chapter 1 and verse 19. We read this. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. The weakest link of any communication is typically the listening. And here is a perfect example. Somebody once said, you know, we've got two ears, one mouth. That should tell us something about the importance of listening. So part of being spiritually prepared for good conflict resolution was that we would be motivated by love, driven by a desire to mutually edify, and third, that we would be slow to speak, and so forth. Somebody once said, pick your battles wisely, or you'll be battling all the time. Think about that. That's a fairly wise statement. Pick your battles wisely. I have a towel hanging in my office, and it has this little saying on it. It says this, Lord, put your arm around my shoulder and your hand over my mouth. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? That's a good prayer. Some of us really, I have clients that come in there and go, man, I need to take that one home. In fact, I, I, had, a, I had a guy that came into my office and he said, can I borrow that? And I said, why would you want to borrow that? He said, well, I'm taking the whole family on a cruise 
And my, my kids and my wife are concerned that I will not know when to speak and how to speak, so if I have the towel right there with me, it'll be a reminder to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> you need to go buy your own towel, okay? He, he went, I think he went and bought his own towel. But uh, by the way, I have another saying, a little, little thing hanging in my, uh, in my room, and it says this, life's journey is not about arriving at the grave in a well kept and well-maintained body, but rather to slide in sideways screaming, holy cow, what a ride. That doesn't sound like stagnation, does it? I hope not, okay? So those things are kind of inspiring to me, but be mindful of what we say. Be careful in terms of how we speak. Let me give you three steps that I use with everybody related to conflict, and they're really simple. The first one is this. Before you address anyone, go to God. Okay? Go to God. While you're there, pray. Ask for discernment. Ask for some insight. Ask to be able to sort of get a sense of what is that person really dealing with. We don't know what's going on with another person. We think we do. We know what they said, and, and we know what we feel, but we may not know exactly what they are feeling or thinking or what's going on. So we pray for them. We pray for discernment, and we pray for self-control, especially if you're going to be the confronter that we would want to have that. So if you've gotten to God, then secondly, you can go to yourself. Always confront yourself before you confront somebody else. It's a good idea. It's a good practice. And while you're there, ask yourself a couple of questions. Here's the first one. All right, what was my role in this circumstance? Okay, you, know, you're like, oh, you don't want to ask that question, right? You might be guilty of something. I might be guilty of something. But the truth is, if we would start there, we'd probably see some things. And here's the second one to ask yourself. Have I ever, ever, ever done to someone else what that person has done to me? And if we're really, really honest, we're probably going to say, yeah, I probably have. And you know what that'll do? That'll temper how you approach that person. It'll give you a sense of, okay, that person's not any more guilty than me. How would I want to be approached? Would I want to be approached? And in what way would I want to be approached. The third one then is then you can go to the person. Okay, you've gone to God, you've confronted yourself, you've certainly prayed, you've got yourself spiritually prepared, you have a couple of tools in hand, now you're going to go to that person. Here's a question people often ask. Is it appropriate and when? Is it always something we have to do? Is there some way that we could just look past some things? Here's a verse that might be helpful in that. Proverbs 19.11 says this, A man's wisdom gives him patience, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The ability to overlook an offense. I, I think that's a growth area for almost all of us, myself included, is ask yourself, is this really that big a deal? Can I overlook that? Can I overlook it, set it aside, cover it, forget about it? Now, if you can't, then you go through the other process. You go to God, you go to self, and then you go to that person. And how do you go to that person? Well, I think it's pretty important. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illustrate something for you, so I have to put this mic down for a second, but I think you'll get the picture, okay? So hang with me. Here's what I use to illustrate my So if I throw you the ball and I got the bat and I say, hey, you want to play catch? <laughs> right? Who wants to play catch with me? I'll give you the ball and I'll hold the bat. Come on, nobody. Okay, you know why? Because this is intimidating. Right? It's big. looks real. It's actually rubber. Listen carefully. Can you ready? Listen. 
crowd going crazy, I just did a home run. <laughs> you know, you have to be, it's a kid's bat, okay, you know. But I keep it in the office to illustrate. This is symbolic of how some people approach conflict. Bat in hand, intimidating, it was me. It was me years ago. Not me now, but it used to be, okay? Nobody wants to play ball with you. Nobody wants to play catch. So you put the bat down, okay? Put the bat down, now all you have is a ball. And then you can say, this is the ball of concern. It's my ball of disappointment. It's my ball of frustration. And I can play catch, and it won't hurt anybody, right? Does that hurt? No. Okay. I can't throw this to everybody, so I'm just going to pick a few of you to throw it to, okay? And I'm going to try to pick the ones I think can catch it so they can catch the ball. Right? Does that hurt? Come on. You can, you can do this. You did not drop it. Okay, that's good. All right, this is harmless, right? This doesn't hurt. If you say to yourself, and I would say to this, I say to all couples especially, you need one of these in a little drawer in your kitchen. And whenever you decide you have a little conflict, you go to get a little ball, and uh, your spouse comes home, and you're standing there doing this. They're going to know that you have a little conflict, and you're about ready to present them with something, but you don't have the bat. You have the ball, okay? And you present it like this. Honey, or hey, good friend, or hey, colleague, or hey, boss, or hey, uh, whatever. Uh, I have a concern. I have a disappointment. I have a frustration. And you talk it to him right. And you use an I statement. It's an I statement. I'm feeling a little, or I'm experiencing a little, because I statements are your absolute best opportunity of being heard. If you walk up and you use this, a you statement, which is pointing a finger of blame, right? Most likely what you're gonna get is defensiveness. People tend not to like to be confronted with, you always, <coughs> excuse me, or you never, and by the way, nobody's that consistent to always do something or never do something, so that language should be left out of our vocabulary to start with. So to me, if we're going to confront, can you hear me better now if I do this? Okay, did I lose you on that one? You could hear some part of it? Okay, you could at least see the illustration. Leave the bat alone, okay? Grab the ball. It's just illustrating how you need to approach one another. It'll work. It really does. Hey, how about a couple of things relative to being the one confronted? Somebody's upset with you, and they've set up a time to come and talk to you. I once worked on a church staff years and years and years ago, and the, the uh, individual that I was working for, if you will, not God, but the pastor, uh, had a bad habit. And the bad habit was showing up late for everything. And I was working part-time as a therapist and part-time on the church staff. And every time we'd have a meeting and I'd have appointments set up afterwards, he'd come walking in 15, 20, 30 minutes late. We'd have staff meetings. Whole staff is assembled. And he'd walk in. Sorry I'm late. After about four, five, six weeks, you say to yourself, no, you're not, right? You're not. And so I finally had enough nerve to say, you know what? I'm going to call him up, and I'm going to set up an appointment. So I called, and I set up an appointment, and I went to his office, and I said, just, I've come to you out of love and concern. I have high regard for you, high respect for you. I love working here. But I feel like somebody needs to bring to your attention how impactful your tardiness is and I feel like you're being disrespectful to your entire staff. I no sooner got that out of my mouth when that dude was up out of his chair and had his 
finger pointed at me. Well, let me tell you something about, okay, and the defensiveness was just rampant, and I did the best I could to deliver. I didn't have the ball. Maybe afterwards I thought I should have had the bat, but <laughs> anyhow, it wasn't very effective. But keep in mind, we've got to learn how to approach one another, and if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. If you're the listener, here's what I want you to do. Excuse me. If you're the one being confronted, you, got three th you have three steps. You ready? Listen, listen, and listen, even if they're wrong, even if you don't agree. You can defend later, but hear it. Chances of you finding some resolution or some opportunity for dialogue with that individual by you doing an effective job of listening will go a long ways. In fact, the statistic is this. By good listening, most conflicts will end up in a discussion and 70% of the time, you don't even need a resolution. If the two of you as a couple or two friends are talking and they get in a little conflict and one of them says, we need to have a conversation. Okay, what do you want to talk about? And you share it. But that person's doing a great job of listening, okay? Pretty soon, they know you heard it. They know that you now have some empathy for them. They're bringing about understanding and they don't even need resolution. At the end of that conversation, you're going you're gonna to probably say something like this, well, what do we need to do? That person's probably going to say, well, nothing, really nothing. I just needed to be able to share that with you. I just needed you to hear me. I don't need a resolution. Now, 30% of the time, you may have to find resolution, and that's not so bad, but that is helpful. So be able to listen, listen, listen if you're the confrontee. <coughs> and then here's another one. Be really slow to respond. The quicker your response to somebody's confrontation of you, the more defensive you're going to appear. Slow it down. Take it. It won't kill us. Listen. Just say to yourself, okay, here's what I have to say to myself when somebody's really upset with me. Sit in your chair, nod your head, smile, and keep your mouth shut, Gary. That works for me. And I might be saying a little prayer, Lord, help me with this one, okay? Because, you know, part of your instincts are to get up and want to defend yourself, but it's not helpful. If we're going to be confronters, we've got to be good confrontees, and that just makes sense to me. All right, is there any value to conflict? Some of you are probably going, man, I hate conflict. How many of you raise your hand and say, I hate conflict? You hate it. Let me see your hands. Come on, be bold. Come on. Okay, yeah, some of you really hate it, like two hands worth. Okay, great. Okay. How many of you would say, I, I, I'm, I like conflict? Anybody? <laughs> it's Okay. It's okay. Yeah. I, I think it's good. Okay. Now, conflict how? Conflict with a bat in hand? Conflict with fingers pointed, name calling, voices raised? No, not that kind of conflict. Conflict that makes sense. Conflict that edifies both people. Conflict that can find resolution. To me, that's a whole lot more effective if you think about it. There are some values to conflict. Listen to this. If we resolve well as we interact in conflict, it will prevent the buildup of resentment. Okay? It'll prevent the buildup of resentment. If we don't have conflict, you know what you do? Okay? It's not like you're not offended, okay? Because we're all offended. We're building it up, we're building it up, we're building it up, we're storing it, okay? It's one of the characteristics of the runners, by the way. They don't usually want to confront, but until they've reached their limit, and then they confront, okay? Can somebody relate to that? It's like, 
I have had that. That's it. You know, and all of a sudden everybody's looking. I'm like, what just happened? That isn't who that person is. Yeah, it is. It is when they've reached their limit, but they should have probably said something a long, long time ago. I had some people in my office today. They've been married 36 years, and she just recently was able to say to her husband, I feel devalued. I do not feel heard. I feel like my opinions have no weight. I feel like I'm invisible in this marriage. And everything in me wants to say, and you waited 36 years to say that? But she did, okay? But at least she's saying it now, and he's listening, and that's a good thing. So if we have conflict, we prevent the buildup of resentment. By the way, how many of you heard about the, the, the jail cell of resentment? Are you familiar with that terminology at all? If you've read anything of Max Licato's, okay, here's what he says. When we are offended and we don't forgive, we take our offenses and we store them in the old jail cell. It's our jail cell. It's got four walls, and we say to ourselves, I've got this person right where I want them, and they can't move. But realize this. Now you are the guard. You're the one responsible for marching around that jail cell 24-7. You think you've got that person incarcerated. The reality is you just incarcerated yourself by unforgiveness. We got to be, we, we got to have the marks of forgiveness. And Jesus told us that we need to forgive one another as he has forgiven us. And it makes sense to do that. Sometimes I'll say that to people and they'll say, I would forgive, but he'll just do it again or she'll just do it again. And I'm, well, that's a different story. Now we're talking about trust. Forgiveness is releasing somebody from your jail cell and giving them the freedom to do whatever they're going to do. Now, if they do it over and over and over, you're probably going to reach a limit at some point where you're going to create some distance and perhaps not call that person a close friend or colleague. Here's another benefit. It will remind us of how much we need God in our everyday life. You ever been in those kind of conflicts where you're like, oh, Lord, what do I do? I'm hurt. I'm wounded. I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. And, and, and it'll just call you, it'll just, it'll just remind you how much you need him. Here's another one. It'll bring opportunity to reveal the work of Christ in your life. You see, you don't know if you've made improvements. I don't know if I've grown unless I have more conflict. Okay, to move from where I was, where I dropped everybody that messed with me until I got married, which, by the way, that, that's a good way to learn. You know, I married a little gal about yay big and innocent looking and beautiful and and uh, I had never had anybody confront me that I didn't have you know sort of tangle with until I met her and she was fearless and she's still fear she's not afraid of me not supposed to be afraid of me okay but I thought back then in 1971 she was supposed to be afraid of me that's a lie she's not supposed to be afraid of me so when I think about where I was I want you to think about where you are and what growth needs to take place in your life, okay? Because some of us have bad habits. I just expressed some of mine to you. Those were horrible, destructive ways in which they interact. But when we recognize there's conflict, see it as an opportunity. It's an opportunity for growth. It's a chance for you to make a movement and mature and, and advance in your spiritual life, in your life with relationships Here's another benefit that some of you may not even be thinking of, okay? Especially in marriage, perhaps in 
you know, the dating stage or engagement stage, but sometimes even in just good buddies, there's a conflict, but you find a way to resolve it. And if you don't have that conflict, you miss out on those little make-up opportunities, right? I don't mean make-out opportunities. I'm talking about make-up opportunities. That's like, you know, I'm so sorry. Me too. I'm, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. Well, me too. I'm, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I forgive you. And, and, you know, a big hug or at least a fist pump or, or something, and, and we're, we're good to go, right? We miss out on it. If we don't have conflict, you guys, we're going to miss out on some stuff. All right, let me wrap up, you guys. I'll shut up, and you guys can do whatever it is you normally do on a Thursday night, okay? I want you to remember this. Conflict is unavoidable. It's going to happen. Got to be prepared. Conflict is inevitable. But also, conflict does not have to be unbearable if we use the right attitude, the right tools, and so forth. The book of James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 states this. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, listen to the specific words of this verse. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then it's peace-loving, and then it's considerate, and then it's submissive, and then it's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial, and it's sincere. Boy, if we could lead with that, if we could allow that to grow in us, adopt that mindset and that heart, boy, we'd go a long ways. I want to challenge you with this last thought. Be peacemakers, okay? Run toward it. Move toward it. Move toward it with confidence, but move toward it with a good heart, good skills, proper approach, and I think you'll find life a whole lot more durable, okay? God bless you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Um, I just want to pray for us, and then we'll just be done for the night, and you can hang out as long as you want to. Father, we're grateful for this time, um, and just for Gary and his wisdom, and I just pray for us as a group, God, that you would reveal um, things in us, areas we could grow, um, that we wouldn't be consumed by fear, um, but that we might be those people that are good at conflict. Um, I pray that would be true of us. We love you. Amen.